You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. This is our election preview special. Who better to have that with than Jake Sherman, co-founder of, is it Punchbowl or Punchbowl News? Punchbowl News. Punchbowl News. Punchbowl News. Welcome, Jake. Um, You have heard Jake's name many times because he's been been all over DC media for a long time. He co-founded Punchbowl News a year ago. Is that right? Almost two years ago. January 2021. Yeah. And we're going to talk about founding that business, how it's going, um, what he's looking forward to, what it makes him nervous. But I want to spend a little time picking your brain as our DC insider, because we're recording this on November 1st, a week out ahead of the elections. Right now, if you had to call it, what does the House race look like? What does the Senate race look like? So, I mean, listen, I uh, the House is a lot cleaner of a proposition. I'll start with this. Like, Everybody's wrong all the time. So, uh, including including the prognosticators. I will not really, hold you responsible for, for yeah, this well, prognosticating. Twitter will. Um, uh, listen, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, needs to net you know five six seats to become the uh, to win the majority. And the average pickup for a party out of power in a mid in the first midterm of a presidential. Um, term is, I think, 24 or 26. And the playing field is like 50 seats deep. Uh, It's probably not 50, but let's call it, you know, 35. I think the Cook political report with Amy Walter, which is kind of the gold standard, Dave Wasserman, who's really great, puts it at 35-ish, I think, toss-up seats or something like that. So if you assume that they, given history, given inflation, given all of the other dynamics that Democrats face a relatively unpopular president. Uh, if you think that they're going to win five of or six of thirty-five, I mean, that's a pretty decent guess. That's a pretty decent guess to say Republicans are going to win the majority. The Senate landscape, I just, it's very difficult to say. I mean, there's only a couple state, not a couple, a handful of states that matter. Arizona, uh, where Blake Masters, heavily backed by Peter Thiel, is go is running against Mark Kelly. Kelly was ahead big. Now it's tightened. Herschel Walker and um, Raphael Warnock in Georgia could go to a runoff if no one gets above 50. That would be uh, a month of tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars of spend in Georgia, which is newly competitive. Pennsylvania, where Dr. Oz faces John Fetterman, who recently suffered from a stroke. Very tight there. Polls are showing within a point or two. And then you have kind of what I call the the lesser states. Not that they're lesser. I love North Carolina, but Democrats always seem that they think they're going to win and then they always end up, you know, narrowly mm-hmm. losing. Um, so, I mean, would I be surprised to see Republicans win 53 seats? No. Would I be surprised to see Republicans have 51 seats? No. Would I be surprised if it was a 50-50 Senate once again? No, I would not. You, you mentioned the the runoff in Georgia. So is there a scenario where the Republicans take the House, that's pretty clear cut, by next Tuesday night, and we're waiting a month to see who controls the Senate? Yeah, totally, po- totally possible. 
and and by the way, there's two different ways where it could, that this can go, right? I mean, if Republicans have won the Senate, meaning they already have 52 seats or whatever, 51 seats, that will be a lot less of a battle. Obviously, it would be a huge battle, huge money if it decides the Senate, right? If that if the entire Senate comes down to Georgia, but yes, it's and and by the way, um, news organizations, uh, TV news organizations, and to an extent, every news organization is kind of planning for that scenario in which George is the center of the political universe from November, you know, 9th till December. I forget what it is, 6th or 8th or 14th. You have your hotel, you have your hotel rooms booked? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that we'll be down there, but um, we probably will be, but no, I don't. It's... Let me just stop you for a second. I, um, I ask you about the, the prediction business and polling specifically after the Trump, the 2016 election. And then again, four years later, there was a lot of like, what is going wrong with the polls? The polls aren't working. Uh, you heard a lot about that again two years ago because they were supposedly had four years to fix them. Is there any confidence that, that polls are better this time around? And I guess a related question is, I thought there was some sort of consensus that maybe just Trump voters were hard to poll. And and so in presidential elections, that that fell down. And other folks said, no, no, this is broken across the board. So is polling broken and has it gotten better? It's a really complex topic. Uh, I think I think that people no longer this is going to be an unsatisfying answer, but this is how we think about it. I mean, you can no longer just rely on one poll from one outfit. At least we don't. You have to look at a whole host of polls. I mean, 538, I think, does a good job in kind of rating the polls on an ABCD level and noting whether they're paid for by a partisan outlet. A lot of the predictors, the prognosticators who, um, you know, move races from lean Republican to lean Democrat or whatever, move the races in one direction or another, uh, get access to a lot of private polls. We do too. Those are really tough to judge because sometimes they always have an agenda, to obviously, to um, have you think of a race of a certain way. I, I do think that pollsters still have a tough time polling Trump voters. I think also the other thing we see is just what sample to count on, meaning what mix of voters um Republicans versus Democrats, how to sample voters, how, what is turnout going to look like this year? Very difficult to know. But I would say the confidence level is pretty low unless you just look at it as a clear picture. I mean, pick a state like uh, uh, Texas in the gubernatorial race. I mean, Greg Abbott's been ahead in almost every poll for, you know, 10 months. So that's pretty clear that he's going to win. And, and Stacey Abrams has been behind in Georgia uh, for every poll for a long time. So so to sum up, we think the Republicans are going to win the House. Senate's a toss-up-ish. But there's also a chance that we're spending time a week from now saying, oh, all the polls were wrong again. They still, sure. They're still screwed. Sure. I mean, I just want to say one other thing. I, I just really do think that you know, in 2020, and Republicans still give us a lot of flack for this, we thought Republicans were going to lose seats in the House. They came within, I think, 37,000 votes of winning the House when no one thought they would. It cuts both ways. And uh, just the odds this time, and it's not me saying this, I mean, the odds this time do seem to favor Republicans' history and the odds and the polls. So, but again, we could be listening, we could be talking in eight days and seven days, and, you know, we're all wrong. Let me move it into slightly more comfortable ground for this podcast. Um, if the Republicans win the House and or the Senate, what does that mean for big tech reform that we've been hearing about for two years? Is it dead in the water? Is there a different kind of big tech reform? I've Some of the tech companies I've talked to feel, you know, 
they're not necessarily rooting for Republicans, but they wouldn't mind uh, Republicans having one or both houses because they think that effectively kills big tech reform. What's the appetite for that? I think I, it's funny you say that. Uh, my co-founder and I, Anna Palmer, who's our CEO, we did a trip to San Francisco and Silicon Valley not long ago, earlier this year. And the delusion and the delusional nature of big tech when it comes to, and this is a painting with a broad brush, it really depends company by company, what a Republican majority would mean for big tech is just, it's stunning. This is going to be, for, let's put aside, and I'll, I'll talk about the big tech bill, but let's put aside the big tech bill for a second. Big tech, if there is a unifying issue among Republicans in the House of Representatives right now, it's that big tech is corrupt and crooked. <laughs> and I, and uh, you hear that from everybody. Jim Jordan, who's going to chair the House Judiciary Committee, uh, is particularly worked up on this. But Kevin McCarthy, who was once a big friend of big tech and counts Elon Musk as a friend and has used to lead trips to Facebook and Twitter and Google over the last uh, 15 or so years since I've been covering him, is also very skeptical of big tech. Some of this is Trump-fueled. But I would say like big tech CEOs are going to be dragged in front of this Congress so frequently over the next couple of years that it's going to be very difficult. It's going to just be a barrage. Now, on the big tech legislation, there is a hope, this uh, antitrust legislation, which Congress has been kind of wrestling with for a while, there is a hope it might come up in the lame duck, that period between November 9th and the end of the year. I'm skeptical on that. I think it's effectively dead in the next Congress if it doesn't get picked up this Congress. But the downside risk for tech companies in congressional oversight is quite high. But what would that look like? So, you, you know, maybe maybe Elon Musk doesn't get uh, uh, pulled in front of Congress because he's now their, their pals. Um, yep. But let's let's say Susan Wojcicki and, and various Facebook executives are asked to come in front of Congress. It's embarrassing. It's a pain in the ass. What comes of that other than sort of sound bites? That's a really good question. I mean, you could there is a narrow kind of ground in which Republicans and Democrats can't agree. And the White House has even shown some openness on on some topics that Republicans care about on big tech. But I mean, here's the thing with congressional oversight. They oftentimes overstep. They oftentimes kind of overblow what they have and say they have more than they actually do. But that doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable for the companies. I mean, even when they overstep and screw up and oversell what they have, they're still able to find emails or I mean, they're still able to issue subpoenas and get have whistleblowers and get the attention of the CNBCs of the world and us and other people on this information and on these topics. So I would say, yes, sound bites, but also no one wants their dirty laundry aired. And it all I've covered a lot of these hearings for a long time, going back to, you know, the exploding airbags of Toyota, I believe it was many years ago, to the oil rig that blew up in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's always damaging, at least somewhat, to the companies that are involved. Yeah, I guess the difference would be, right, if you saw this over the last few years, um, the stuff that the Democrats are pulling up was stuff that actually sort of painted an unpleasant picture about collusion and and antitrust issues that, that were real issues, whereas a lot of Republican issues seem to be mostly fabricated, right? Like uh, a sense of grievance about not being treated fairly, usually unsupported by evidence. I think it will be much harder for them to find smoking guns saying, yeah, we're going to we're going to screw Kevin McCarthy here. What would this new update doesn't mean they won't find something that they, is embarrassing. 
That, I think that's right. And I, and listen, I think um, Section 230 is something that the White House has indicated that they might have some openness in discussing. I, I would imagine that tech companies are ramping up on that topic. I mean, tech companies are already ramping up for a Republican majority, are already talking to people who worked for people like Kevin McCarthy and other top Republican leaders on the Hill. But the real risk for tech companies on the big tech bill, which is the Amy Klobuchar, Chuck Grassley, et cetera, bill, is in the next, you know, eight weeks. And I, I personally believe, and we've reported this, I mean, if they had 60 votes, which is what you'd need to get it through the Senate, they would have put it on the floor already. Mm-hmm. They haven't. And that's been a huge frustration to supporters like Amy Klobuchar, who have suggested and have, have insisted that they do have 60 votes. So they've dodged a bullet. And by the way, they've enlisted everyone in town to lobby against this thing. So uh, and I'm not talking about one company specifically, but every company has worked this really hard. Which is good for your business. Let's let's yes. talk about your your business. So, uh, like you said, you launched Punchbowl almost two years ago. You came out of Politico, like another group of people came out of Politico. That was Axios. In just a few years, they managed to really build something big and then have sold it at a valuation of more than a half a billion dollars. You're, you're not there yet, but but give me the <laughs> give me the scope of the business. Last year, you guys said you were you had done ten million dollars in revenue in your first year. What does the second year look like? Much better. Um, we've had a really good year. I mean, we we were at Politico, myself and Anna. I was there 11 years. Anna was there about nine years. John Bresnahan, our, uh, one of our other co-founders, was there basically since the beginning. He's one of Jim Vandehei's best friends. I'm not sure he would admit that publicly. But I mean, I was when I started at Politico, Vandehei interviewed me. I mean, that's how small it was when I started at the place. Um, we grew up there. We ended up writing Playbook, which is the flagship morning newsletter that Mike Allen started in 2007, myself and Anna. Um, and towards this is the, the must-read of- newsletter in town. It's for insiders. Here's Correct. what's happening in, in Washington today. You You only understand what you're talking about if you're inside to begin with. Yes, I think that's right. And you'll only understand it. Uh, I can't speak to what it is now, but you'll only understand it uh, if you kind of are in the bubble. I think that was the idea of it originally. But um, the end of the pandemic, we kind of decided we wanted to do something on our own with kind of a laser focus on the congressional leadership, which we felt like we had an expertise in. Myself, Anna and Brez and Rachel Schindler, one of our other co-founders, worked at Politico as well. So even narrower than Politico, right? Politico is like, we're going to treat D.C., like the industry it is for insiders. And you guys said, we're going to narrow that down even closer and just do Congress. Well, we, we've not, not just do Congress, but the politics of legislating, which is actually when you get to the core of what people care about when they read political news, when they are operating in the DC sphere, they want to know what's coming. They want to know what Congress is up to, what the most powerful people in leadership are thinking about, what they're thinking before they say it publicly. And we felt like we had a a very unique lens into that. I mean, Anna and I wrote a book about congressional leadership back in the Trump era. Uh, John Bresnahan's been covering it for 25 years. So we felt like we were really well positioned to create a news outlet where, and when we first started talking about it, like if we stripped it down, what do we care about and what do people actually care about and not chase shiny objects? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene is really great for a lot of news outlets, but she, at this point in, in the last two years, have had has had very little um, impact on the legislative debate in Washington. And again, that is what people care about. They want to know what's coming, what the White House is trying to do before they do it, what Hill leaders are trying to do before they do it, what lobbyists care about, what where the kind of political war is being waged in the Capitol, which we believe is the most important place in, in town. And we can talk more about Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and the mechanics of what you do, but, but, but let's talk some more about the business. So last year, you guys put out a memo saying we're, we're doing 10 million. What's the number for this year? 
uh, I would be fired, and I'm not sure I can be fired if I said it, but I, uh, it's significantly more in our, and we're, we were very profitable our first year. We've, we remain very profitable our second year. And our business breaks down like this. We sell sponsorships to the newsletter. We have one free morning newsletter in the morning. We have a premium subscription, which is the midday, which is the morning, the midday, and the afternoon. We do, we have a big event series, kind of newsmaker events, but also, um, social events. So we, our theory of the case at the beginning was if we could get people involved in our ecosystem, we could do a lot of things with them, for them, and and to them, I guess is the best way to say it. But, um, and that has all proved to be very profitable and very successful. And I would also say we thought for way too long that news organizations fed you news and then kind of left you alone to figure it out. Like, we're going to write a 1,200-word story and like make of it what you will. We'll see you next time we write a story. That's not what we do. We do what we call brown bag lunches with our readers uh, monthly, if not more frequently. And uh, we try to create, and I know it's cliche, I've heard you kind of poo-poo it on this this very podcast, but we try to create community. And I think we've done community a decent- great. Yeah, I think we've done I think we've done a, a very good job at doing that. I mean, our events are super popular. We get hundreds of people on these brown bag lunches where people could ask us about our reporting and about what we do and um it's been fun to do and it's been fun to build. So, I think uh last year you guys said uh, 10% of that 10 million dollars was coming from subscriptions, the rest was sponsorship. Is that sort of the same breakdown now? No, what we said and people extrapolated is that we had an excess of a million dollars in uh subscription revenue okay. and we did $10 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. We didn't say how much in excess, but we, um, our subscription revenue is way up this year. And remember, we only, we started at four, with four people. We only raised a million dollars uh, when we started. We wanted to build a business that was, I'm trying to think of a delicate way to say this, uh, that was, we wanted to build a s- sustainable business. Yeah. And we didn't want to raise a ton of money, go hire a ton of people, and then figure out how to monetize them. Like Anna, who's the business brains behind the operation, really feels like, and I, I agree with her and we do this together, that we hire people if we figure out that there's a good business case for them. Like we just don't go hire people to cover X just because it's interesting to us and could be interesting to our audience if there's no monetization value around it. What does a subscription cost? Uh, $300. $300. So this is aimed at a professional class, obviously. But yeah, but also point. Capitol Hill, right? Yeah. I mean, we have a t- I mean, we're in all the offices on Capitol Hill. I mean, the way I think of it is like when you read Punchable News, you're waking up reading what the leadership is waking up reading. And that's kind of what we see the value prop as. And I wrote a story about your business, but also Puck and Axios and Semaphore early this summer was when Axios sold. I said, I, you know, I was pointing out that one of the reasons Axios was successful was that it had this advertising business. I think it's called corporate responsibility. Am I getting the, the correct term? It's 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 lobbying as ads. And a lot of it's, it comes it's, from It's essentially tech. issue advocacy, right? Issue I mean, advocacy. And uh, that's what I assume was working for you guys as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge, the advertising is a huge part of our business. And I heard, I, I think it was Janice Min, who I respect a ton, who is the CEO of The Ankler, um, who you had on recently. She said this, and I think I've told you this in the past when we've spoken, like we're revenue agnostic in the sense that like, we we want to create a big sustainable business and we are happy to have ad revenue we are happy to have event revenue we're happy to have subscription revenue we want all of those to be as big as possible and actually i will say this and i think janice kind of hinted at this as well but our audience is interested in the ads as like if you are i'm just going to give an example this is this is fictionalized, but if you are Goldman Sachs or you are Bank of America, you're interested in what JP Morgan Chase is saying. You're interested in what, you know, Blackstone is saying. You're interested in that, not because it's going to sway your view necessarily, but 
you're interested to see what they are talking about. So not only are they trying, are people trying to reach lawmakers, which is of course the issue advocacy piece, but competitor, it's shadow boxing. Competitors mm-hmm. are also interesting what they're interested in, what their competitors are saying. Yeah. I was looking today that your, your sponsor for today's letter was, was TikTok. Uh, explaining that they're an entertainment platform, they're highlighting that, saying we know we have, there's issues, but you know, just this is this is all the great things we can do. It's very clear what they're trying to do. Um, after I wrote that corporate responsibility piece, I started to hear from people saying, you know, the the thing you didn't point out in that story, Peter, is that there's all these conflicts of interest, and people are paying to play. There, you know, you sponsor a a, a conference, and then you get to be on stage at a conference. Where do you draw the line between? Um, your editorial and what an advertiser wants in terms of either on a page or on a stage or anywhere else? Our advertisers have no say, like if we do an event with um, Congressman X that Company Y sponsors, I mean, it's not as if the advertiser has any say over what we ask Congressman X. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do, as and we're you know transparent about it, we do fireside chats after the, after the events. Uh, it's not as if we you know, kick everybody out of the room and do them like they're happening in in full view of everybody else. And, uh, you know, I don't think I've I've never had a feeling that we um, our editorial is at all compromised by by any advertiser. And I think our reporting shows that. And today, uh, so just to spell, here's an example in today's newsletter, advertising an event on November 21st. You're going to have Rep. Suzanne, Susan Delbene. Thank you. You're going to interview with her. The thing is sponsored by something called Trusted Future. I, I have no idea what that is. And then after you're done talking with her, or I guess Anna's done talking to her, the Trusted Future people are going to come on stage and they're going to have a conversation. But it's you've laid out like it's this part is sponsored, this part is not. We're, we're delineating and we're comfortable that we think you are, you as the consumers are comfortable as well. And understand and understand that this is not, um, yeah. Understand the delineation between the two. Correct. And I, and by the way, we are far from the only people in the marketplace doing mm-hmm. this. I think this is a. And again, it's a. There's, we're pretty transparent about it. And um, yeah, sadly, uh, doing conferences for years, uh, and we really didn't allow anyone on stage uh, who was a sponsor. And every time we did, we regretted it because the content always sucked. It was it was partly a journalism thing, but also just the content suck. Once you get an advertiser on stage, they start droning on, and everyone flees the room, and no one has a good time. Right, but I w- I would delineate like the the sponsor is not on stage with the newsmaker. Mm-hmm. That's yep. that's the um that that's the delineation. It's not like we have a a um an event with you know Congressman X and you know so it's uh, there is a delineation there. I'll be right back with Jake Sherman, but first a word from a sponsor. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? And we're back. So you got into Washington reporting how long ago? I have the traditional journalism path, which is we um, I interned in college at newspapers. I went to GW in DC, so I'm like I've been here for a long time. I interned at the uh, Star Tribune in the Minneapolis Star Tribune's DC bureau, which I don't I think it exists, but in a lot smaller of a form. I interned at Newsweek back when it was still the was Newsweek of, yeah. of yesterday of yesterday um, yesteryear. I interned at the Wall Street Journal in its DC bureau, and I I started. It was the summer of 09, so Rupert Murdoch had, I think, just bought the paper. Um, I went to Columbia Journalism School, and then I, in 2009, I was getting out of um, 
my journal internship and I had an offer from Jim Van Dehy at Politico. I was I, there were maybe 30 people there if that Van Dehy would correct me probably if I was wrong if he remembered and the Star Tribune wanted me to move to Minneapolis and I think the Star Tribune offered me $32,000 and Politico offered me $30,000 and I was like, "Oh, that makes total sense. I'll go with the well, I'll go with the offer that makes less." God, money. I had the exact and, same story when I was working for Forbes, but that was years earlier in the same numbers, so DC DC reporting is not a good way to get rich at the beginning. When you left college, did you plan on running your own newsletter startup? What was the aspiration? I, I, this is a broad statement. So I, I mean, I had no desire to leave Politico. Really, um, I was there for for a long time. I I loved the place. I love I loved what um, the kind of work that we did. Um, I, I changed my mind, I'd say late in the pandemic. A lot of the people that I had kind of grown up with there had left, uh, uh, people that you and your audience will know well, Maggie Haberman, Jonathan Martin, Alex Burns, Ken Vogel, Mike Allen, Jim Vandehei. I mean, a lot of the people that I kind of looked up to and worked with for a long time left. And the, you know, I took over Playbook with Anna right after Mike left. I mean, we made a pitch to Robert Albritton, the own, the former, now the former owner of Politico, who um, owned Politico at the time, and we kind of presented ourselves as the best option and went through a big lobbying process to get that job, and did that for four years. And there was a lot of changes at the top of the newsroom, a lot of changes at the place. We started talking to each with each. We never thought we were going to start a company ever. Ever and and we kind of were introduced to Arya Borkov, who is uh, uh, the founder of Lion Tree. Who he, I think he, a lot he of does know. all. He's the banker behind literally every media deal there is. Yeah, we talked to him um, and kind of immediately hit it off. And um, we had I think one phone call, and he just said, "This is a great idea." Um, I mean, there was more to the phone call than that, but thought it was a great idea and said, "Yeah, we want to back it." So he. Uh, he, I think he did a, uh, he and friends and family did the million dollar round. And um, hopefully that is the last round we ever raise. When the Axios guys left, there was a lot of coverage over it. And Jim Van Dyke really won't say it publicly, but it's quite clear that one of the animating reasons that he and and his crew left was they didn't own Politico, which is the thing they built. And they they were quite sour about that. And, um, and I think wanted to build another version of Politico. And the difference would be, that they owned it and that's worked out really well for them was that same sort of wanting a piece of what you built was that also driving you yeah it probably was um that wasn't the precipitating reason why we left but we um listen play it's no secret playbook as 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 has been chronicled by many people in the media space for the last you know 15 years since mike started it um was a huge revenue driver for politico for many years and was very influential and we felt as if we could um, strip it down to what our core area of core competency was, which is understanding the the people who actually matter in Washington and make a pretty sustainable business out of that. And um, that's what I think we've done. And also, there's something about Politico, to be honest with you, that just spits out people who are hugely ambitious and want to go out and do their own thing, even if they don't know it. I mean, Ben Smith, who obviously has now founded Semaphore, but uh, was, you know, there's just a ton of people, Jim and Mike, um, there are people all over the place at media companies all over the, the country that have their roots at Politico. 
But Politico doesn't stop publishing. It didn't stop publishing when Axios left. It didn't stop publishing when you left. You are competing no. with it. They are much, much bigger than you. You're what, like 14, 16 people? We're 14 people. They're 500, 600 people, yeah. So, and and they want to do all the same stuff you're doing. They would say they're doing all the same stuff you're doing. How do you compete against them? How do you sell a subscriber or a sponsor on working with you when they're being asked to do the same thing at, at, at Politico or Axios for that matter? I think that no matter who our competitor is, I think the proof is in the pudding. We break more news on Congress and on the politics of governing than anybody else. I think we're sharper than anybody else. I think we are better sourced than anybody else in congressional leadership. And that's what people want to read about. People want to read about decisions before they're made and what the leadership is thinking. That is the the coin of the realm, as Nancy Pelosi always tells me, um, about um, uh, on Capitol Hill. I think if you... If you ask anybody um, on Capitol Hill to, to, and that's what we care about. We care about readers in this building. That's what it all radiates out from. If we have the readers in this building, we have a very good business and everybody has to read us. I think if you ask anybody, we are by far break the most news in this building, the building in which I sit right now, the Capitol, than anybody else. And 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 our, my theory of the case is, my view is, act every day like you're going to get fired. I own the company and I'm not going to get fired, I don't think, uh, at least not for, for if, if in the near future. But um, well, you have to prove yourself every day, three times a day, three issues a day. Speaking of the building you're in, I forgot, I was going to use this in the intro and forgot. So thanks for reminding me. You, I think you are the only reporter whose text messages have surfaced in both the January 6th committee hearings and the Elon Musk uh, Twitter trial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Elon Maybe, Musk, I don't know, but that sounds right. Yeah, it sounds Elon Musk. You just you sent him a note saying, "Hey, can we talk?" And I don't think he responded. Who were you texting uh, uh, that that was relevant in January sixth? Uh, Mark Meadows, who I've who known was at the I, time, who was the, at time the chief of staff to to uh, former President or to then President Trump. It became a big deal, uh, and I. It's such a silly issue. I mean, I was sitting in this room I'm in right now, the House Periodical Press Gallery, third floor of the Capitol, you know, maybe a 45 second walk to the House floor. And there were people all around. The, I mean, we all know what happened on January 6th. And I basically said to him something of the effect like, we're all sitting ducks. If there's anything you could do to get people here to help us, like, please do that. He didn't respond. I didn't think it was particularly a newsworthy thing that he didn't respond. Sometimes sources respond to you. Sometimes they don't. He clearly wasn't interested in stopping the insurrection at the Capitol, as the mountain of evidence indicates. But it became a thing like I was texting my friend, Mark Meadows, not my friend, but um, and it became a whole thing in the media, which I am. Um, I, I can't know, imagine I anyone who would see that and go, oh, that's a problem. Like, yeah, I have I have kids and I'm, I have a wife and I would like I would have liked to get home to them that night. And yeah. if I knew anybody in power, if that happened again, I would be texting them immediately to figure out what I could do to get police to a building that was under siege. You did at the beginning of this conversation bring up sort of dismissively Marjorie Taylor Greene and saying she's not really the story. The story is the people who are making things happen, the people who are making legislation happen, et cetera. And I think they're from the get go since you guys launched, you said we're just doing we're just doing lawmaking. Um, we're going to not we're going to uh, disassociate ourselves from politics and extremism would say you're doing it wrong if you're if you're ignoring the Marjorie Taylor Greens because she's a real threat. She represents a threat to democracy, depending on on how serious you take her and the the power that has placed her where she's at. By the way, she could also, I've read, could be in position of real power. Has anything over the last couple of years made you sort of rethink? It sounds like no, but rethink sort of keeping a really intense focus. I guess is the polite way to say it on the mechanics of governance and ignoring sort of the 
the the streams underneath it. Yeah, so let me take that in two parts. Number one, we broke the story that she was involved in starting some, I'm not going to be able to remember what, what it was, but some caucus that was had undertones of white nationalism. So when 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 there are issues like that, we cover them. When it actually matters, we covers it, but we cover it. But if she's going out and saying something, you know, for example, she had this long running like I I want to debate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's not something we're going to we're not going to get involved in antics because it, our, our readers generally don't care when it's of substance, when it matters, when she's exhibiting or using her her perch of power to do something obscene, like starting up. I can't remember what it was, but it was white nationalist something or whatever. I don't remember. So whatever. We're going to report on that. Now, we'll have to. The jury is out on how powerful she'll be in a Republican majority. I'll give an example. Maureen Dowd did an amazing column. Most of her columns are pretty damn good um, about Nancy Pelosi at the beginning of this Congress, where Pelosi dismissively uh, referred to AOC as she has one vote. And so that's the power she has. I actually don't disagree with Pelosi on that. If she is able to cobble together more than herself, then that is a power base that we're going to have to pay attention to. We don't know that she's going to be able to do that. By the way, she's getting pretty close to the congressional leadership. I don't think I think she thinks she's going to be in a position of power. The jury is still out on that. We'll have to see. So in that respect, we'll have to cover it. We're not going to cover the antics. We are going to cover the use of power. Our credo is power people politics, which I'm very proud of that pre credo. But um, you know, we're going to cover we're going to cover that stuff as it matters to um to governing and to the use of power. Almost everyone I talk to now on this podcast is is in the newsletter business and, and or a subscription business. Not everyone, but many of them. So I've had person after person coming in here to tell me that the merits of subscription-based businesses, um, why they're better than advertising, you do both. We're looking at a very rocky economy. Uh, everyone in the media business who's selling ads is, is terrified. But I also just saw shortly before we, we logged on this afternoon, a story saying that is Insider, which had been pushing a big paywall business, is now moving most of its writers out of the paywall, which to me is a signal that they're not confident they're going to find more subscribers next year. If the economy goes south or more south, how you, you describe it, what does that do to your business? Jury is still out. I, don't, I mean, I, 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 if I had a, a crystal ball to predict the economy, I would be uh, a lot richer than I am. So- we feel like we, and I, I mean, if we're not doing this, we're not doing our job, but we're essential to people who are various, who have a lot of money and a lot of stakes in governing, um, which is important. I mean, Congress is super important to a lot of industries and um, especially with change, with a, a new a new leadership in place. Washington is not going out of business. Washington's not going out of business. No. I mean, that doesn't mean anybody is immune from economic pressures. I will say this, like- our open rates are several times the industry standard. So we've actually seen as we've grown, our open rates have grown, which is very strange in and of itself, because you would imagine if you grow, your open rates would decline a little bit. That has not been the case with us, either on our free morning newsletter or our paid product. And on the newsletter business uh, uh, angle, here's what I, I how I think of it. If everybody's decided tomorrow that they were going to get their news by carrier pigeon, we'd be in the carrier pigeon business. Um, I, I think that, and I've I've told I've I've expressed this with Jim on Twitter a couple of days ago in a back and forth that we probably shouldn't have gotten into but we agreed that if you're focusing on the medium I think you're focusing on the wrong thing. I do. I think people live in my business. I can only talk about my world. I can't talk about Hollywood or Silicon Valley or hedge funds or Wall Street. 
People in my business live on their phones. They are living on their emails. I don't know that that will be the case forever. And I hope when that's not the case, and I expect that when that's not the case, we will be early adopters of figuring out what's next. But right now, people live on their email. And it's a really efficient, for a million reasons, a really efficient way to do to get information to people. Now, I do think that the shittier newsletters and the less critical are going to fall away because things that are just riffing or just kind of conventional wisdom and not breaking news every day and telling people something that they can't get somewhere else, that those are going to go away because those are those are luxuries and novelty and silly. But if you're providing something to your readership, if your readership needs you and you're providing something to your readership every day that they can't get any anything else. And my colleague said this the other day, like the news business is about fear in a lot of ways. Like you need to be afraid of what your competitors have and that you don't have it. I mean, that's the way I was brought up at Politico. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about, about the culture of, you know, the cutthroat culture of Politico at the beginning. I mean, I, I it was very cutthroat and you were afraid to miss a scoop. Like, I'm not, we don't have that same culture in our place, but like, we want people who are breaking news and people feel like, uh, we want people to feel every day that they're going to open our newsletter. Our competitors are going to be like, shit, we missed this. And our readership is going to say, this is why we have to read them every day because we're not getting this anywhere else. Yeah. You will see a lot of people who are in that culture, um, dressing up things as scoops or overplaying their importance. I've noticed, unfortunately, the really good reporters of the Wall Street Journal now seem forced to stake exclusive on everything. And I think it's... Yeah, I don't understand. But whatever. I, that's befuddled um, me too. I think yeah. any smart reader can understand that. So you seem like you were in a good position. You raised very little money. You're profitable. Yes, you very. With a very small team, which means you don't have to raise money. You don't have to sell. What would prompt you to either raise money or sell the company? I could just feel my co-founder just hitting me upside the head for for entertaining this question. I I have no idea what would I mean. Thank you for not saying we have no intention of doing those things. That usually means you've you've raised money and you know you're going to announce it next quarter. No, we've not raised money. I could tell you that we have not raised money. And and like Anna and I and my and John Bresnan and Rachel are the four founders of this company. Like we feel like we're just at the beginning of this bet. And this is a really awful analogy, which I use all the time. But we feel like DC and this market is a very wet towel and we haven't begun wringing all the water out of it. I know Ooh, it's, it's stretched. It's yeah. disgusting, but it, that's how I think of it. Like, mildew. I the think hotel of, I went oh. to in Key West a couple months ago. <laughs> I think I, I feel like there is tons of white space in this market and we haven't even begun. We're at like the first step of exploiting the white space that we think exists in the DC market. Like we have a ton of ideas, a ton of, uh, we just hired a financial services reporter who is focusing exclusively on what financial institutions and crypto are doing in DC. He's not trying to understand, he's not trying to like get inside Goldman and figure out what their strategy is for Q2 on selling, you know, um, uh, mortgage-backed securities. That's not his charge. His charge is to understand what they're doing in DC. So that's an area we think is, is very ripe, especially with the um, pullback of some other news organizations that cover that. Raise money, I don't know. I mean, I we haven't raised money. We're not raising money. I could say that definitively. If we decide, if like we want to do something that we can't afford that we think is going to be super profitable, I guess we would raise money. But we've, um, we're not like the funny thing about us as, as founders is like 
we've not done this before. So the idea of just raising money to raise money, as we, as has been suggested to us by multiple people over the last couple months, is crazy to us. Like, why sell more of your company if you don't have a purpose for the cash right now? Like, we're profitable. We could afford everything we want to do. All the growth that we feel like we could do, we want to do, we could do from our own balance sheet. So that's kind of the long and short of it. I mean, if if if, you know, I don't know what I, I can't foresee anything um, uh, changing that at this point in time. I think that's the correct answer. Jake Sherman from Punchbowl News. Thank you for coming on. You got a busy what, couple weeks, months ahead of you. So good luck. Months. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Jake Sherman. Thanks again to Travis for producing and editing this show to our sponsors for bringing this show to you, as well as the bonus episode we had. I think we're done with bonus episodes, but I can't promise that. Maybe you're going to have extra content through the end of the year. We'll see. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.